0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic SYNCAST, with your host, Eric
1: P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic SYNCAST, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, aka Scartol, in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Monday, the 9th of August, 2021. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started bit be and dope bid a brand new kid to show bid with now a job persevere but I now do me a favor favor let me in here and we can find a Ronda Phillis space and drop the base uh first of all I want to say thank you so much to my family and friends in Florida I took a trip there recently I got to see my brother Mark and my nephew avid and my friends Megan and kick and Jojo and Lan and uh, Ms. Beach and Ms. Lopez, and I got to see my mom and her husband, Rob, and I interviewed my mom and her husband, Rob, and uh, that's gonna be a Syncast that's coming out in audio format soon. So I gotta edit that up, and I'll be posting that before too much longer. So if you're watching on Facebook, you'll only be able to hear the audio because, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, it was a great trip. And I'm really uh, grateful that they were uh, so gracious in hosting. And I got to eat La Fiesta and Waffle House, the two restaurants I missed most about being in the South. And, um, yeah, it was a great trip. And I was uh, I played it totally safe. I took takeout from those restaurants. I didn't eat in anywhere. And I had my mask on the whole time. I wasn't with the people that I know and trust. So I, I seemed to be fine. Hopefully I didn't bring back any diseases. It's, it's scary with this Delta thing. We thought we were on the tail end of this whole pandemic, but, you know, hey, look, unexpected complications have arisen. The Delta variant is especially contagious, and a lot of Americans are not uh, vaccinating themselves or uh, wearing masks, which is a problem. But I'm not trying to dwell on that because there's a lot of people working to overcome that. I believe that. Uh, requiring people to get vaccinated before they can go into public spaces just makes a lot of sense. That's what they did in France, and the vaccination rates shot straight up. I think that there are employers who are saying, if you don't get vaccinated, then you can't work here. I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, look, there are parents who say, oh, our kids, you know, people with signs that say, unmask our kids. Okay, does that mean that if I want my kid to go to school without clothes on and poop on the floor, like freedom you should have the freedom to do that no of course not why not because that's a public health risk well so is sending your kids into school uh unvaccinated so i think we should vaccinate all the you know obviously we can't vaccinate people under the age of 12 yet it hasn't been approved for that but i think that as soon as we can you know re- require it for people 12 and up and uh, require masks you know mask mandates it's so sad that some states have said you know governors including the governor of florida Or Florida, as my mom would say, uh, have said that they will withhold money for any school districts that require masks. And I think that's sick and twisted. And I've seen some people on Twitter talking about how their kids have been uh, sickened after three days uh, because there are kids in their classroom who aren't wearing masks and they're not vaccinated uh, and and they're spreading disease. And that's not okay. Uh, So, you know, it's really sad to see the the ways in which um, ideology is overcoming good science. And as I've said before, we're all subject to our ideologies. We're all um, beholden to our ideologies in certain ways. But the question is, how do you modulate that with other information and concern for others and empathy and all those other things? But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I want to give a shout out to Shay and uh, Garrett Crowell for this awesome Isotopes hat that they got me a while back. And I haven't worn it as much as I should. Uh, It's a fitted cap, which means it doesn't have one of them you know, adjustable backs, and as a result, uh, it was—it uh, feels a little bit snug, but that's okay. You know what? I'm not going to wear it too long, and uh, it's holding my brains in. Maya Angelou once said she wears scarves nice and tight in order to keep her brains in, and David Foster Wallace actually said something similar once upon a time. So anyway, thanks for the hat, y'all. Crowls represent. Uh, you may notice if I stand up that I'm wearing my ZPC shirt and that's because I got this new book coming out soon called Delivery to Nimbus X. It's in book form. It's got this awesome ad for cherry nitrous on the back, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Uh, the proofing has all happened. Thank you. Shout out to the Duchess, Diane, for doing a proofread of it, and uh, special thanks to Tim and Jacinta and Brian and everybody who's given me such positive feedback about the project, and uh, Duchess, of course, been very supportive, so thank you for that, Diane, and yeah, it's uh, probably going to be another month or so. I want to put it out when Schools in session, so I can, um, yeah, do a launch party with you know teachers that I work with and other people. And yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Stay tuned. It's obviously, if you've been paying attention, I've been posting the story in chunks on the internet, so you can read it all for free right now if you want on Medium. Uh, I'll add a link, I suppose. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm very proud of it. It's a good story. It's about a bunch of um, space you know, freighter haulers who get hired to transport some drugs for this planet of hedonists, and then they get sucked into this civil war, and it's all a big hullabaloo. But that's not what I wanted to talk about today. The reason I'm doing a SYNCAST today is because I've been thinking a lot lately about the ways in which the world tries to split everything up into simplistic binaries, right? This or that. And so often we get a choice between one or zero, and those are our only choices, right? Um, You know, if you think about good and evil, a lot of times we think like this person is good, that person is evil. Yeah, the world tries to tell us that you're either smart or you're dumb, right? That's it. You're either smart or you're stupid. Uh, If you are smart, then you're either artistic or you're scientific. Yeah, Uh, you're either beautiful or you're ugly. You're either sane or you're insane, right? These are very simplistic ways of looking at the world, but they're everywhere. A lot of teachers will talk about good students and bad students. Uh, You know, people talk about I'm in love or I'm not in love right? Uh, you talk about you're hungry or you're not hungry. You talk about you're tired or you're awake. You're asleep or you're awake. But let's take the example of a sleep and awake for a second. Modern sleep science has shown us that it's not one or the other. We have all these different stages of sleep and we actually wake up at certain moments without like being awake, without regaining consciousness, right? So, So the idea of like you're asleep or you're awake is actually not accurate, yeah? Sometimes we doze off for a moment if you're if you're on a boring car ride right you might doze off for just a moment and then you wake up again right or you as i say when you're asleep sometimes you'll wake up for just a moment without realizing that you've woken up so that is an example of the kind of binary that i think it's important to resist because these binaries can be dangerous and the reason they're dangerous is because they oversimplify the world yeah uh, there's a really good writer named uh, Lynn Nottage who wrote a play that won the Pulitzer Prize called Ruined. And it's about uh, this situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has had these civil wars going on for decades now. Uh, I think five million people have been killed. And they did a, a trip to the region in order to you know, meet people and talk to them about what life is like in that area. Uh, so Lynn Nottage and then she had a theater director, director named Kate Wariski who went with her. And during one of these trips, they met a man who had survived the Rwandan genocide. And he said, you know, people often come to these places and they think of it as just, you know, there's war and then there's peace. There's tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. But what Nottage and Wariski said was that, you know, this man who survived the Rwandan genocide told them we must fight to sustain the complexity. Because he said, our lives are so much more than just this genocide that happened, right? And of course, the same is true of East Timor. The same is true about, you know, Jewish folks and, uh, you know, uh, homosexuals and other people who were killed during the Holocaust. Um, it, you know, the, C.S. Lewis once said that we are neither good nor bad. We have good times in our worst days and bad times among our best. And I, I always laugh when, you know, I have students who are just like, oh, that's the way the world is. It's a horrifying place. Everything sucks. And don't get me wrong, at times, it, that those things are true. But if a guy who survived the Rwandan genocide can say we must fight to sustain the complexity, then I don't think any of us have the right to act as though the world is just evil and horrible and filled with suffering. Because Helen Keller, who knew a thing or two about suffering, uh, once said, The world is full of suffering, but is full also of the overcoming of it. And I think that right now is an important time to think about that because, you know, it's very easy to look at the people who are refusing to wear masks, refusing to get vaccinations, even though they could. And there are some people who medically can't get vaccinated. And for their sake, the rest of us really ought to, so that their safety is not endangered. Not to mention the doctors and nurses who are being stressed out of their minds and the ERs are filling up again and whatever. But, you know, here's the thing, look, it's it's so important to resist the temptation to, you know, give in to the cataclysm and to, to think about everything as being the end of the world. Uh, so, you know, I saw a statistic recently that said that the vaccines have likely saved 300000 lives. Now, I don't remember where I read that. I, I can't give you a citation for that. But it's an important reminder that, you know, those are things that we don't hear reported very often. Right. We don't we don't get news reports about all the people who aren't sick, who aren't dying. And even when we have outbreaks uh, of vaccinated people who are getting sick with uh, the covid-19, their symptoms are much milder and the strain on the ERs are much less because people took that action. And that's a great thing. We ought to recognize the goodness there uh, just as much as we, you know, are frustrated by and fight against the retrograde actions of people who don't get vaccinated. So, you know, that's that's the kind of balancing act that I'm I'm in favor of. And I think it's very important for us to do that for ourselves because it's so easy to look at the Internet, to watch social media, to, to doom scroll, as they say, and just be overwhelmed by all the horrors of the world. And, and I think that the ego plays an important part here. I tweeted about this recently. Um, you know, our egos want us to believe that you know, we have to stay up to date on everything and we have to know every wrinkle of every part of it. And, you know, for those of us who tweet or post frequently on social media, the ego tells us that, you know, our tweets are important, right? We can, we can change people's minds or get people to think differently or help educate the world through our tweeting or Facebook posts or our podcasts. Now, of course, you know, we might have a minor impact in those ways, but mostly it's to feed the ego, right? The number one reason I do this podcast is the same reason that George Orwell said was the number one reason that he wrote, which is ego. We want to get back on people who've wronged us. We want to seem clever. Uh, We want to get public recognition. That's just a truism. And it's not as though, again, there's no binary that says you're egotistical and therefore bad, or you're pure of heart and you have no ego uh driving you and therefore you're good it doesn't work like that the point is you know can you differentiate between the things that your ego is driving you to do that are unhealthy or avoid confusing your real purposes when it comes to ego um and thereby do the thing if it feeds your ego and have fun and you know do this and entertain people with the podcast or whatever okay fine but don't believe that you somehow have this responsibility to know about everything that's going on to make your voice heard as as a dissident to try to change people let people know that they suck um when it's really your ego that's kind of driving you and the other benefit of that is that once you recognize that it's your ego that's driving most of that then you can step back and be like okay you know what I don't need to learn every single thing about this horrible thing that's going on. I need to step away and preserve my mental health and keep myself, you know, in a state of wellness so that I'm pleasant to be around and I'm not overwhelmed by everything going on in the world. I don't know if I believe that things are worse than they were 300 years ago. That's an arbitrary number, 300 years ago, right? In 1721, Were things worse then than they are now? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Probably. they. I mean, it depends on who you are, obviously. Some people had a really hard time in 1721. The question is, do we know about all all the stuff that's going on that's horrible? I think the the big, you know, one of the problems that we have today is that we know we have so much access to information about all the suffering that's going on, which is a real concern. Um, And, you know, and, and again, I'm not arguing for turning our backs on the suffering, but rather finding ways to navigate that information about the suffering because we should be fighting against it we should be taking action to stop the climate crisis and end police brutality and 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 stop homelessness and all the other horrors that are going on in the world but you know when you're pushing for that action great push as hard as you can for as long as you can but when you're not doing those things if you're not you know this is not really a binary but you know there are times when you're devoted to fighting evil and then there's times when you're devoted to taking care of yourself and being able to turn those you know levers up and down is a very important skill and i don't think anybody becomes a teacher if they're really lazy but on the other hand when summer hits like i'm not i'm not really a teacher you know i get to turn it off and i'm very fortunate that i don't have to you know do summer school or whatever but uh you know all the work and stress and and frustration that i face during the school year i believe means that during the summer I get to turn it off and I get to take it easy and I get to write and play video games and, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm very fortunate, but I also have worked hard to find some balances in my life. I wrote a piece once upon a time called Resisting Oversimplification, which had to do with Kony uh, 2012 or whatever it was. A lot of people, when that first came out, they were overwhelmed and they, they were all in for the Kony campaign. And then there was this backlash where people were like, Oh, it's a hoax, it's a fraud, it's, it's you know, just people, neocolonialism and, and all this stuff. And that backlash took a real toll on the founders of that organization, which had problems. You know, I'm not going to defend the way that Coney 2012, the video happened, or I'm not going to get into it now. But I, I just, I think that's a good example of the desire people have, you know, the group Invisible Children wanted to present it in this very simplistic black and white perspective. That this is the bad guy. And here are the good people. Um, And then, you know, when the backlash happened, almost the exact same thing in reverse took place. We saw people lambasting invisible children as the bad guys. And, um, you know, they didn't talk about who the good guys were, but they were like, this is an evil organization. They're just greedy fundraisers, yada, yada, yada. And lost in that whole argument was like, "Okay, well, how do we fight for human rights in in sub-Saharan Africa? right? Because that's what I was most concerned about. And um, Facebook, stop telling me my FPS is too low. I'm doing the best I can. Go away. Uh, so Human Rights Watch Amnesty International put out statements about the whole Coney 2012 phenomenon. And I wrote a thing about how, you know, what it did more than anything else was certainly raise people's awareness about what was going on in Uganda. And, um, you know, look, a year ago, we the whole... You know, white civil society was up in arms about police brutality and Black Lives Mattering. Even Mitt Romney was out in the streets with a sign. A year later, that fire and energy seems to have vanished, right? I don't see anybody expressing outrage about police brutality today. So these things can very easily come and go very quickly. And the question, as always, is how do you sustain that anger? How do you keep pushing for change without burning out and without? Doing it in a performative way, where you're virtue signaling, where you're just trying to make it look like you care a lot, and then you're not really willing to do a lot of work behind it. So anyway. Um, Of course, another tricky part of this whole process is to have... An awareness of and appreciation for the complexity of issues to resist oversimplifying things into, you know, this political party is good and that one is evil. Uh, Even this policy is good and that policy is evil. Uh, Those are oversimplified ways of seeing the world. So we have to appreciate nuance and complexity. We have to sustain the complexity. But we also have to have a moral compass. Right. Because a lot of people, that's another binary we should break down. Uh, A lot of people you know, will say, like, well, okay, I can see it from different perspectives, so I guess there's really nothing to be done. Or, you know, I shouldn't, you know, advocate for this or that because there's value in other perspectives as well. No, that's not okay. Uh, Rather, the question is, how do you have that moral compass without becoming an absolutist? How do you appreciate and recognize the complexities while still saying this is what needs to be done? And that, I think, is the hardest part of all because, you know, we want easier answers, yeah? Some of us want easy answers, and, and that's a problem. But I think all of us want easier answers because it requires less effort, mental effort, physical effort, emotional effort. But I think that being a decent person, if it means anything, and it doesn't mean much, uh, I think that this, the, the, the yearning to be decent people uh, should drive us to, to do things, take action, donate to good groups of people, And without, you know, giving into the temptation to say, like, the people on the other side of this issue are evil and terrible and, you know, you can't communicate with them and and all this stuff. Now, at the same time, you don't want to bash your head against a wall. If somebody's arguing in bad faith or not willing to have an honest conversation, yeah, don't waste your time. Um, But nevertheless, I do believe that human beings are often willing to listen. And even if they seem like they're not paying attention or caring about what you have to say— The planting of seeds is a real thing, and I've probably mentioned this on the show before, but I'll mention it again because I think it's a very important story. I had a student one time named Emily. Hi, Emily, if you're out there. Um, Yeah, she had her head down the whole time. She was a student of mine. She never did the work. She was happy to get zeros. I mean, not happy probably, but she didn't ever show any distress uh, when her grades were very low in the class, and um, she eventually transferred to a different school. And a year later, she sent me this note that showed up in my mailbox one day and it said, uh, Mr. P, I just want you to know that I didn't pay attention to anything in class ever. I couldn't tell you what happened in To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know what happened in Timor. But I watched you deal with that student who was really, really difficult one time and you never lost your cool and you didn't, you know, lash out at him. And, And I really appreciate that. And I learned a lot from that incident. So thank you. And I was blown away because I could have sworn that she wasn't ever paying attention to anything. And so ever since that time, I've come to realize that, you know, I I can't assume that anyone's not paying attention. So I act like everybody around me is always paying attention all the time. Now, I don't want to take that too far, you know. So, oh, God, they heard me sneeze. I'm so embarrassed. That's not what I mean. But there's a potential for having an impact. Right. And then the other thing I'll mention, and then I'll sort of end with this Uh, one time at the University of Florida, when I was in grad school, they had this there was this political event. I won't go into the details about it because it's not important, but there were a lot of people on this sort of, you know, square on the campus uh, talking about political stuff. And there was this one guy who was, you know, sort of ridiculing people who were involved in activist groups, which I was one of the groups of people saying, you know, hey, get information about this topic or that topic. And he just came by and he was like, y'all are wasting your time. There's no point to any of this. The world is too messed up. The powerful people have all the control. You're not going to change anything. And I just stood up and I just let him have it. I ripped into him. I was like. You don't know about East Timor, do you? He's like, what's that? And I was like, yeah, exactly. And that's why you have such a sour, defeatist attitude. And I know you're wrong for a fact. And East Timor proves it. And I was you know, really reading him the riot act. And eventually he was like, whatever, dude. And he walked away. And I was used to that. A lot of people ignored me when I talked about East Timor. It still happens. But as he walked away, I noticed there were about 12 people standing around looking at me. And one of them said, go on. What's East Timor? And I was stunned because that had not happened much. Uh, And and I wasn't really ready for someone who was actually interested in hearing what I had to say. It's so easy for us to convince ourselves that nobody cares what I have to say. No one's ever going to listen to me, that we're not ready when someone is listening to us. And so I say to you, you know, whatever you're passionate about, be ready to talk about it. And the more you convince yourself that nobody cares about what you have to say, the more defeatist your words will be. And then the less interested people will be. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you can speak with love and compassion and wisdom and intelligence, uh, you might be able to reach some people who do want to hear what you have to say. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for everybody who wants to hear what I have to say on this dumb little podcast. Uh, and I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to say today. So uh, I'm going to uh, finish off with uh, the audio from an Alan Watts uh, speech. Alan Watts was a British academic who um, did a lot of traveling around Asia. And he learned a lot about the philosophies of uh, places, uh, including India, China, Japan, and elsewhere. And he uh, came back to the U.S. and the U.K. and gave speeches about what he had learned. And one of the speeches uh, he gave had to do with what's called prickles and goo. And I'm going to put the audio of that on the end of this podcast and, um, I'm going to post it as a comment here on this video on Facebook Live. So uh, I'm going to wrap it up here, but I'm going to put the audio in there. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. Shout out to uh, Diane, of course, all my friends and family in Florida and the people I couldn't see, Addie and Owen. Sorry, I'll catch you next time. And um, yeah, thank you to everyone listening and watching. And please leave comments. Uh, I would say like and subscribe, but I think that's obnoxious. So don't do that. Don't subscribe. Just pay attention. Holler if you hear me, as the kids say. Alright, that's everything I have to say, so here comes Alan Watts.
0: Friends, Romans, me your ears. Stop the is near, but don't panic. you can't if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. Boy, men. In in the history of philosophy and poetry and art, we always find the interchange of two personality types, which I call prickles and goo. <laughs> the prickly people uh advocates of intellectual porcupinism. They want a rigor, they want precise statistics, and they have a certain clipped attitude in their voices, and you know this very well in academic circles, where there are people who are always edgy like that, and they accuse other people of being disgustingly vague and miasmic and mystical. But the vague, miasmic, and mystical people accuse the prickly people of being mere skeletons with no flesh on their bones. And they say to you, you just rattle. You're not really a human being. You know the words, but you don't know the music. And so, therefore, if you belong to the prickly type, you hope that the ultimate constituent of matter is particles. If you belong to the gooey type, you hope it's waves. If you are prickly, you're a classicist and if you're gooey you're a romanticist and going back into medieval philosophy if you're prickly you're a nominalist if you're gooey you're a realist but we know very well that this natural universe is neither prickles nor goo exclusively it's gooey prickles and prickly goo and uh, you see <laughs> it all depends on your level of magnification if you've got your magnification on something so that the focus is clear You've got a prickly point of view. You've got structure, shape, clearly outlined, sharply defined. We look out of focus, it's going to go bleh, and you've got goo. But we're always playing with the two.
1: Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. Seesore for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Oh, I didn't see this comment. Joey Marshall. Hey, um, I was in uh, Tallahassee and then Gainesville and then uh, Beverly Hills on the west coast, kind of north of Tampa. So one day I'll get back to Sarasota, but uh, it just didn't work into the flight plan this time around, so.